And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, on today's episode, we are going to take a look at the history of amusement parks. Now, this is something that I think every child has gone through, whether they, whether it was some distant goal of theirs or they went all the time. Um, people love amusement parks. And I remember growing up in the Chicagoland area that Indiana Beach was a big place to go. I remember going with a friend of mine. Jumped off the high dive for the first time and bruised my back and almost drowned. I also remember going to Six Flags Great America in Gurney and going on the Demon, which was a very, very tame roller coaster because um, I was terrified by them. I feel comfortable admitting that right now. So these were the pivotal moments in my childhood. And I wondered how they came to be. Like, how did they start? Why did amusement parks come about? What were the first ones? What were the first rides? So we're going to get into that. Now, keen listeners of the program will remember episode 48 with Seth Porges about a little place called Action Park. Uh, If you haven't listened to this episode, I highly recommend going back to it. Now, this was a very unique amusement park in New Jersey that was seemingly run by the Island of Misfit Children. Uh, It was seemingly lawless. Uh, The safety regulations that... um, they came into play much later in the 70s and 80s were not in play at the time this amusement park was in operation um there were lots of 14 15 16 year olds running the rides and it appeared that the most exciting rides at least the the um the ones that drew the most crowds were the ones that they weren't engineered by um What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, engineers. They seemed to be trial and error, possibly out of a child's fantasy or simply out of laziness. Um, And this was a place, a mecca uh, for kids in New Jersey in the 70s, as you will hear about. I highly recommend that. You may want to listen to that after this one to see where it fits in on the timeline, uh, but definitely worth a listen. So with that, I think we are ready. You are ready. Uh, We've all come to this point to listen to historian, amusement park historian, Jim Futrell. Jim, thanks for being on the program today. Tell me exactly what you do. So you're the historian for the National Amusement Park Historical Society? Uh, Association, yeah. Um, Yeah, so NAFA is is a um, all-volunteer nonprofit. Um, so I've been in the position of historian actually since 1984, so quite oh, a while wow. now. Um, and I've served, uh, two different terms on the board of directors. Um, we have, so the organization, I mean, essentially it's open to anyone who loves amusement parks, past and present. Uh, we are the only group in the world that, um, is dedicated to the entire amusement park. There are lots of, uh, uh, clubs out there focusing on roller coasters or carousels or dark rides, but we're the only one that looks at the, the amusement park as a whole entity. Um, you know, we have a magazine that comes out six times a year. Uh, we have a um, 
monthly uh, electronic newsletter we send out that focuses on breaking news in the industry. Um, we do events at parks around the country. Um, now, now, how did you get, like, wh what made you kind of get into amusement parks? Did you enjoy them as a kid? I mean, did you get scared on one? Did your parents never let you go on them? How did that, what, what No, happened? I mean, yeah, actually, um, it had, uh, yeah, it's something that I think, you know, if I look back at my life, I've been fascinated with amusement parks for as long as I can remember. Um, you know, I grew up, spent a big chunk of my youth in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, the park there was called uh, Uncle Cliff's Family Land, and I know I'd always be begging my uh, parents to take me there. We and we would be, my mom grew up in Cincinnati, and we'd go to uh, visit my grandparents. We'd go to the local park there, Coney Island, and you know, one of my earliest memories is I was eight years old. This was 1972. Uh, we um, were visiting my grandfather, and I, I still remember this clear as day, so this should tell you something that... Um, uh, you know, I asked my dad, you know, we're on my grandfather's front porch, and I asked my dad, are we going to go visit uh, Coney Island while we're here? And he said, well, that it's closed. And I, you know, I remember being devastated. And it's like, don't worry, that they they moved to a new place that's even better. So that was Kings Island. And oh. uh, we did go on that trip, and I you know, was, loved Kings Island, and we went on a pretty regular basis. I went to college at uh, Miami University in Ohio, so had a season pass for – uh, two of my four years there, um, but yeah, and then um, I what I consider the watershed event is um, again these are dates that are stuck in my head. Uh, it was Flag Day in 1974. <laughs> so I was Very 10 specific. Years old. Yeah, it was it, well, it was the last <laughs> like day of that. school. Uh. And I was in my backyard, and my neighbor comes over, and yeah, um, she worked in public relations, and they were hired by the Marriott Corporation to help promote the new theme park they were building in Chicago, uh, which is now Six Flags Great America. And um, being the cool neighbor, she said, yeah, I just came back from the groundbreaking for the new theme park they're building. I thought you'd like the, um, you know, she brought me all the publicity materials that they had handed out there. So um, I got the, the original press kit from Marriott's Great America, and I would spend just hours poring over the photos in there and reading and rereading the press releases. And then one day I was at the local library, and I just decided, no, oh, let's look in the card catalog to see if they have any books on amusement parks. And they had three of them. And um, again, just checked those books out over and over and over again, and studied every little detail of them. And uh, yeah, then you know, found out then you know when Great America opened. Uh, Riverview Amusement Park. Um, there was all, that, that was the park that used to be in Chicago. It closed in 1967, but there was a lot of big wave of nostalgia remembering Riverview as this new park was opening. And uh, so this guy wrote a book and was giving you know, two talks at local libraries. And my, you know, so my parents never took me. My parents were wonderfully supportive of this, and they dropped me off at the library for the, the talk by this guy. Um, and he started talking about you know, these new clubs that were being formed um, for people who really liked amusement parks. And I was like, wow, there's people like me. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> so I started joining all these clubs, and I you know, joined NAFA in 1980, so I was 16 at the time. And I've uh, you know, been involved with them ever since. Um, you know, people you know, keep classifying me a roller coaster enthusiast. And while I love roller coasters, it's really the whole amusement park that um, really interests me. I mean, I'll go to any amusement park, large or small. Um, I, I really do like the small, out-of-the-way, obscure places that 
you know, might be, you know, four or five kitty rides on a go-kart track because you know, a lot of those places just have kind of a unique um, feel to them. Mm-hmm. What I what I say kind of give the industry its soul. Right, right. So you like the whole experience of the place, not like individual, like uh, celebrity rides kind of thing. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I mean, I will ride any roller coaster once. I tend to avoid a lot of the spinning rides, but... Uh, yeah, I like the parks as a whole, as you know, an, an entire entity. So, what is your current favorite park? I mean, as the expert, not as the novice child. Mm-hmm. I mean, as the expert, what's your favorite park? Yeah, I mean that's. Hard. I mean, I like you know the the um, my standard a, uh, answer tends to be whichever one I'm visiting at the time. Oh come but... on, Jim, give me something better than that. <laughs> no, be but there, no, there are actually yeah, there are actually ones that stand out in my mind as you know the ones that I will return to at the drop of a hat. Now. Kennywood here in Pittsburgh has long been a favorite of mine. It's really the last of the big old urban amusement parks. You know, back up until Disneyland opened, the industry was anchored by you know, the bigger amusement parks in the centers, you know, closer to the cities. So, you know, Kennywood was Pittsburgh's park like that. Cleveland had Euclid Beach. Chicago had Riverview. And um, Kennywood is really the last of them because, you know, through the 60s and 70s, a lot, you know, most of them closed because of rising property values, age, you know, urban unrest, um, aging, you know, facilities. So, you know, Kennywood has been able to maintain that position in Pittsburgh. It's still, it has a fantastic mix of historic rides and new rides, um, great atmosphere. Um, Silver Dollar City in Missouri is another favorite of mine. That's you know, a wonderful uh, one of these classic things that um, this family bought this cave in the Ozark Mountains as you know a roadside tourist attraction and built that up into a major theme park. Uh, Disneyland has a you know, place near and dear to my heart just because of its impact and I you know, just love the park. Uh, and then you know Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen is you know, a lot of times I term that my favorite place on earth. Wow. It's right in the heart of the city. Um, you know, beautiful park. It's and if you talk to them, it's you know really a fascinating facility because you know, they say there are four pillars to their operation, and that's you know the rides and attractions like most amusement parks, but also the dining. I mean, it has some fantastic you know uh, restaurants there that could hold their own in New York or uh, you know any other dining capital. Um, the 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 culture they have their own symphony, lots of live entertainment, and then the gardens, you know, the beautifully landscaped park. So, um, if I had to name a favorite, it would be, you know, be one of those. No, that's that's fair. Uh, it's funny that you kind of started out with Great America because I, as I mentioned, I grew up in Chicago, and Great America was always like the the mecca of the of the eight year old. You know, like that's where you wanted yeah. to go. It wasn't close enough for me. I, I didn't live in Gurney, but I remember that was you know. I think I went once in high school, and I remember like looking at towards that date when all the seniors went there as like the day. You know, like that was a day I looked forward to for like ten mm-hmm, years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now let's let's get into the history because as I was going over some of the the material and like reading about this, the history of amusement parks is it's kind of amazing how they evolve. There's lots of cool little twists and turns here, and these things have actually been around since like the 1500s. Um, right? Yeah. Pleasure gardens. What's a pleasure garden, Jim? And let's let's keep it you know you know safe. Well, us. I mean, yeah, that's what yeah the, those um, back in the 1500s, 1600s were started springing up uh, as the city started growing and. Then as now, it was a place for people to escape the drudgeries of everyday life. And I think what's great, fascinating about it is that it, you know, they, 
they they had the, I think a very similar feel to what you had today. It was um, landscape grounds. It was places to eat and picnic and dance. It was fireworks. Um, they even had a few primitive rides. And um, yeah, there's a couple parks that um, kind of still have their still exist that have their roots in those old pleasure gardens. Um, there's uh, Bakken uh, outside of Copenhagen, which is the uh, world's oldest operating amusement park. They started out in 1583 um, as concessionaires um, set up tents around the spring that people would come from uh, Copenhagen to to uh, enjoy. You know, just a natural spring at a time when there wasn't a whole lot of clean water. That in and of itself was an attraction. Um, and then also um, the Prater in Vienna is another one uh, that has its roots in uh, being a old uh, pleasure garden. But uh, you know that's where it started. And if you look at uh, when the United States started, you saw a number of similar types of facilities in you know, like New York City. Um, you know, one of the most famous of the European ones was Vauxhall Gardens outside of London, and um, in New York City, a very primitive Vauxhall Garden started up in, I believe, the 1700s. Wow. Well, I mean, even in the 1600s, 1650, I believe, um, there were like in, in St. Petersburg, they had like wooden sleds that would go down, you know, on chutes, almost like tobogganing, right? But it's kind right, of yeah, the old, roller coasters. Yeah, the old Russian mountains. Um, yeah, very similar in concept to today's roller coasters. Uh, people would climb this wooden structure and sit on a wheeled sled and go down the mountain and then um, the French kind of picked up on that uh, concept and you saw a number of those types of rides being built in France and uh, there were even ones built with loops which I can't imagine back then wow. <laughs> you know, the, really yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> that's incredible yeah how do you guarantee you've got enough speed to go around that what's the physics behind that? oh trial and error <laughs> <laughs> I guess so uh, you know, it, it's funny that that the um, the Bakken's in Cop is it it's Bakken, right in Copenhagen. Yes, it's mm -hmm. been around since 1583. Is it still built around a clean water spring, or have they found another way to draw people in? It, I mean, it, it's a very unique concept now, but it makes yeah. total sense when you're thinking back then. No, I mean it's it's well, it's um, no, I mean, right now it's the spring was on the edge of the Royal Hunting Grounds, so that has now become this large municipal park. So people come out come out there and walk, hike in the park and uh the the you know amusement area is still in one corner of the park they i was there last year and um the manager showed me around and he took me to the same spring that started the park it's still there it's still bubbling away wow. there's now a restaurant built around that spring and the other uh, park has kind of developed beyond that and it's an attraction in and of itself yeah i mean it's been around since 1583 that's pretty amazing mm -hmm. uh, so, so now this stuff was going on in europe and like most things at the time, this all kind of germinated over into the United States. Uh, so let's talk about the first stuff. So Jones Woods opened the first amusement resort in New York, right, in the 1800s. Right, yeah, and that was um, you know, uh, very similar, I think, in feel to the uh, European Pleasure Gardens, um, a place to escape, uh, you know, having you know, live entertainment, dancing. Um, I think you know, beer was in pretty... Uh, generous supply. Um, and then um, you did see similar types of picnic groves uh, throughout the 1800s open uh, throughout the eastern United States and into the Midwest. 
tr uh, transportation companies played a huge role in that early development. Uh, steamboat companies would run excursions from the city out to uh, land that they would have um, away from the city. Again, you know, provide an escape. Uh, railroads in the you know, starting in like the 1870s. Uh, started running exc excursions to uh, resorts that they had purchased in outlying areas. And then it was really in 1888, the trolley companies, um, which you, uh, you know, probably have heard about this whole concept of the trolley park. They kind of latched onto that and as a way to generate ridership in the evenings and weekends would build an amusement resort at the end of their line. Um, and you know, from 1888 through the early 1900s, hundreds of these things opened throughout the country. Now these were all, so so basically the trolley companies would buy a stretch of land, build an amusement-ish park, and then that's where you would that, that was the end of the line. Like the only way you could get to it was through the trolley, right? Right, exactly. Um, I'm sure you could take a horse and carriage out too, but uh, <laughs> right, yeah, sure. They, they kind of discouraged that. Right, right. Uh, I'm sure they did. Mm -hmm. no, and like, you know, it was, well, I was going to say it was really um, you know the, the atmosphere was much different at that time. You know, rides were almost an afterthought. You know, the big things were like summer theater and concerts and dancing, um, picnicking. Uh, you know, park. Yeah, you know, that most of them had some sort of merry-go-round ride or a swing ride. Uh, few had roller coasters and old mills, but uh, rides really didn't become the heart and soul of amusement parks until the years after World War One. Well, you know, you know what's interesting is is you've written extensively on Coney Island specifically. That specific, it's hard to call it amusement park, um, but but you know that specific land. The history of Coney Island is kind of cool to look as a parallel to the history of amusement parks in the country because it kind of was the first and always represented the little landmarks, little watershed moments throughout history. But, right, right. But let's talk about Coney Island just briefly, um, and you can use it as a parallel. I think it works perfectly. But in 1829, because it's its own island, it's Coney Island, and it was kind of connected to the mainland in 1829. And so, how mm -hmm. did it start? Because it's kind of a unique place in this. In this, yeah. History. Well, it, um, again, it was a place to escape from the city. You know, cities back then were not exactly the most pleasant places. They were hot. They were crowded. They were dirty, and. Um, Coney Island being right on the, sh the uh, shores of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, one of the things I had read is that the temperature there in the summer would usually be 10 degrees cooler than what it was in the city. So it was a natural draw for people to get out there and just cool off and kind of escape the sweltering conditions in the city. Uh, naturally, where there were people, you know, it kind of was a reflection of New York City at that time, you know, with the entrepreneurial energy of the immigrant population, mm -hmm. you know, pe people started setting up businesses to capitalize on the crowds that were coming out there. Uh, you know, first things were, you know, you know, pavilions serving food and offering dancing, and then hotels, and then, you know, primitive merry-go-rounds. Um, so it kind of just kind of snowballed from there, and you know, by the late 1800s, really uh, was the heart and soul of the uh, global amusement industry and and so you, you make a point to mention that it is never an amusement park but it was always a collection of amusements so did that kind of spring up with like people just finding that there was an interest in this type of thing in that area and then just built their thing there right i mean it was just you know again the entrepreneurial energy um you know someone would lease a parcel you know someone you know someone like an you know um you know, Nathan Handworker, who uh, started Nathan's Hot Dogs. He, he he had an idea for a business, leased a parcel, opened up a business, and built an empire around it. 
Um, so there were a lot of those individual concessions in this neighborhood. Um, and then you had a few of the, um, you know, the, the, the big, uh, what I would consider the giants. So, um, you know, you had George Tillyou, who was one of the, was one of the big operators there. He had kind of built a collection of amusements in one area. And then, um, Captain Paul Boyton, who actually in 1894 opened what is considered the first uh, true amusement parks. It was the first one to use rides as its primary draw and be enclosed and charge an admission. Uh, he succeeded in Chicago and decided, well, I'm going to New York, you know, Coney Island and uh, you know, see if I can make it you know, there. So he opened Sea Lion Park in 1895. So, you know, even then it was kind of, you know, New York, New York, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. Right. And and so till you saw what Boynton was able to do, so he t- he got a parcel of land and then built Steeplechase Park, which uh, you know he he kind of took it up to the next level. He brought in you know again enclosed it, charged admission. He pioneered the use of pay one price admission. Uh, he really was one of the first ones to pay attention to the built atmosphere of the amusement park, mm-hmm. uh, the landscaping, the uh, buildings. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of then led to, you know, one of their, one of his concessionaires uh, deciding, you know, we can do better Then they bought out um, Paul Boynton's Sea Lion Park, built Luna Park, which, uh, Really borrowed a lot of the uh, elaborate architecture from the 1893 World's Fair. Really uh, made extensive use of electric lighting, um, and then another entrepreneur um, built Dreamland, which kind of took the Coney Island, uh, the Luna Park concept, and uh, doubled everything. Uh, that was never as successful because they didn't. He, the people running it were not really the showmen that Tillyu or um, Thompson and Dundee at Luna Park were. Um, so yeah, that's where it was really kind of at its zenith, where you had these three big parks and then the dozens of independent concessionaires around it. Kind of yeah. Like well, so now let's go. You, you brushed over a couple of things. I want to I want to hit because this is really interesting stuff. Um, now I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, Gad Norton and Lake Comp, uh, Compounds. Am I saying that correctly? Right. Mm-hmm. That's the oldest operating park, and that was built in 1846. And that's pretty cool. That's still working. It's still running right now. Right, yeah, they are um, a very successful amusement park now. They had some rough patches in the 80s and 90s, but uh, actually Kennywood, my home park, uh, they bought it and oh, uh, built it up and turned it into a successful business that's been really thriving ever since. That's great. But yeah, he, that, that Lake Compounds, again, was kind of reflective of a lot of stuff going on you know, in the years before and after the Civil War where uh, just someone saw an opportunity to create a place where people could escape and, you know, spend a relaxing, you know, Sunday afternoon, uh, you know, picnicking, dancing. Uh, and there were, you know, lots of uh, facilities like that, many of, most of which are now lost to time. Sure. And you mentioned the trolley park. So that's, we're going to talk about a couple of genres of park because there's a big mm-hmm. evolution. And I think it's marked by these moments where things kind of shift. And in 1893, the World Columbian Fair comes in and you kind of mentioned, um, how the in '94 the uh, Paul Boynton opened up Sea uh, Line Park in Chicago, but that was the year that the Ferris wheel was introduced, which was a big deal. Right. Yeah, and yeah, that was actually the World's Columbian Exposition in um, 1893 was a watershed in terms of it really established uh, 
the you know mass entertainment as an industry, the outdoor entertainment industry. Mm. Um, you know, the fair again, you know, the fair was a very carefully planned fair with the elaborate architecture, overseen by Daniel Burnham, one of the great um, Chicago architects. Uh, but then you know the Midway Plaisance, which was kind of right outside the grounds of the fair, uh, was where the they rented out space to independent concessionaires, and you know, so that's where George Ferris built his wheel. And it's interesting if you look at the history of a lot of the big, um, the early industry, uh, the people who drove the early development of the industry, they all visited the fair and came away inspired by that to get involved in this industry. So I mentioned Paul Boynton. You know, he was he was a performer at the fair because he did sea lion shows. Uh, George Tillier from Coney Island, he went and visited, and he actually tried to buy the Ferris wheel after the World's Fair. And the deal, you know, he couldn't get a deal. Thompson and Dundee, who built Luna Park, um, you know, Walt Disney's father was a carpenter there. So, oh, yeah, wow. there, I didn't there's, know that. That's crazy. Yeah, so there's a lot of stories that, you know, he would tell, you know, Walt and Roy stories of the World's Columbian Exposition, this grand World's Fair, and that was part of their um, development into the industry. Um, but, yeah, the list goes on and on about, you because know, everybody went to this fair. I mean, it, it was, I think it was something like the quor- a quarter of the population of the United States visited. Wow. Which, which yeah, yeah, well, I'm sure, yeah, there were Holy repeat cow. visitors, but, yeah. So, um, it, and I think it still is widely regarded as the most successful fair in history. I mean, it sounds pretty, it was, I mean, very influential at the very least. Mm-hmm. I mean, highly yeah. influential. Uh, now, so Boynton came, built the the Sea Lion Park, and there he also had the first looping roller coaster. So roller coasters are at this point being made, and he's got the first one that loops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, the, that's what I think is you know interesting about this industry is um, you know Coney Island had such a dominant presence in that industry uh, in the industry at that period. A lot of people think that's where the first came from, and a lot of historians have done research and found that. It was not Coney Island was not necessarily the revolutionary part of it where the things were introduced, but it was the one it was where they were popularized. So there were um, primitive looping roller coasters that had existed. Um, I think you know, the other first one that we there's any documentation of was like an built in 1889 in Toledo. Mm, okay. And that guy, I mean, again, that was another example of a guy. Okay, I have this concept. I got to take it to Coney Island to see if it. Uh, if it really flies or you know, there are lots of uh, primitive roller coasters that existed prior to LaMarcus Thompson building his switchback railway at Coney Island in 1884. Um, but, it, but it was him building that ride at Coney Island that really pushed it into the co- cultural mainstream. Right. And, and it's, what's kind of cool about um, this whole era is that, there's a couple of different genres being produced, and so you mentioned briefly the the midway, which is basically like a walkthrough with like rides and, and games, right? And and mm-hmm. and then the exposition park, which is was the evolution uh, with Luna Park, I believe, where you had lots of elaborate buildings, tons of lights, big designs. So it was like a spectacle, something to go into to really escape from the world, right? Yeah, and it, it, much more elaborate types of attractions too. If you know they they you know, the trolley parks tended to have uh, more simple roller coasters. The exposition parks would build scenic railways. So it was a large roller coaster that would go through murals. You know, they would have names like, you know, you know, Rocky Road to Dublin and uh-huh. uh, you know, <laughs> the coal mine. And you know, so they were th- really heavily themed rides. 
uh, decades before the concept of the theme park existed. They had um, recreations of, you know, like Japanese villages or, you know, out, you know, like essentially an early version of the World Showcase at Epcot. So mm, okay. they, they kind of added a new level of sophistication to an emerging industry. Right. Um, and the exhibition parks, there's still one open in, in Lakes, uh, Lakeside Park in Denver, right? That one's Right, open. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's and a it's pure still... exhibition park. Right, yeah. I mean, it still has a, many, a number of its original features. It still has, you know, its Tower of Jewels, which is the you know, Mediterranean-looking tower encrusted in light bulbs. Um, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Dreamland you mentioned before, was the best of the exhibition parks. But it, it, it was like one of those, the, the, the brightest stars burned for the shortest amount of time. Because like, this thing was, was set on fire. Uh, it was it's set on fire. It was lost to a fire in 1911. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it, it, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the best. It was the most elaborate. Um, okay. It was never really that successful from a business perspective because I think it, it, you know, they tried to be the biggest of everything, but that lacked kind of that showbiz flair that really entertained people mm-hmm. um but you're right i mean you know they had a 300 foot tall tower i mean yeah i mean if I, I look at some of the old photos of this place and the scale of it was I, just unimaginable yeah and you know you know a million electric lights adorning all the buildings um but yeah you're right there was a um a fire that was started in one of the water rides um you know they were repairing the trough, there was a leak, uh, they were using flame, you know, open fire to melt the tar and just set the building on fire, which is a very common uh, hazard of amusement parks back then because everything was built out of wood. Right. Or, you know, what they, um, they, this thing called where they would like, you know, use like this plaster with fibers in it. Um, so, you know, to make, you know, elaborate shapes and facades and stuff. So, yeah, it, um, really burnt down a major chunk of Coney Island, not only the park, but a number of, you know, several dozen of the concessions around it. Now, I misspoke and said that it was set, but I think that's because as I was reading, you mentioned that arson was a big problem in this time. And I was thinking to myself, who's setting fire on purpose to these to these rides? Yeah. It seemed like Coney Island was kind of hit the hardest. Yeah, and I, yeah, I don't know if it was as much arson as neglect, you know, that... Uh, the uh, building codes were much different at that time. Electricity was a new concept, so uh, the hazards of improperly wiring something or overloading a circuit were yeah. not completely understood at that sure. time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also do think there was some of that where, um, you know, bad, I had a bad season, my lease payments due, <laughs> I need to get out of the business, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, no, let's let's stick around in the 1920s for a little bit, um, only because my favorite thing to talk about are, are the firsts, the innovations, you know. And I think mm-hmm. this era had a bunch of them. Uh, and there's there's two landmarks that are currently in Coney Island. I want to talk about briefly, and that's the Wonder Wheel that was put up in 1920, and then the Cyclone mm-hmm. Roller Coaster in 1927. Both of these are still in operation, and they're national landmarks. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, how did they, how did Coney Island acquire them? Why are these things so special? Yeah, you know, yeah. I think it's. Um... We want, you want to step back about a decade because you know, by World War One, the industry had really kind of matured and essentially gelled into a formal industry with its own trade association and industry leaders. And you know, with the Industrial Revolution, with the maturing of the industry, they had a much more sophisticated consumer. 
and they started demanding more and more thrills and that's when the rides re uh, really came into their own so through the late teens early 20s you saw this um spark of innovation in the industry where you started seeing a lot of new rides being introduced uh one of the most critical um critical innovations was john miller who um really kind of the grandfather of the modern roller coaster he perfected the system of locking the trains to the tracks on a roller coaster so that meant they could evolve from these mild-mannered scenic rides to true thrill thrill rides and now this system's result, still in place too i mean this is this is how innovative yeah, it was it's still every roller coaster today still uses that system so um i mean that shows you you know how remar you know what a land how remarkable it was yeah absolutely um, and uh but you also saw a lot of smaller rides get developed so you know the whip ride the tilt-a-whirl um the you know the the dark ride so parks started building up their ride lineups much more aggressively and you know coney island again being at the heart of it did see a lot of um landmark rides being put in at that time you know wonder wheel um is a one-of-a-kind ride. Uh, you you don't see it anywhere else. I, I mean, you know, Disneyland built a version of it. There's a version of it in um, Japan, but uh, it was nothing. You know, it was you know, it was a big, elaborate ride, so you didn't really see it duplicated at other parks. But uh, you did see kind of a roller coaster arms race at Coney Island there in the 20s. So you know, the Cyclone uh, was one of a number of. Uh, really, you know, elaborate thrill machines that were built at that time. You know, the uh, you had the Tornado, uh, which opened in the 20s. You had the Thunderbolt, which opened in the 20s, both of which existed into the 70s. And um, in the case of the Thunderbolt, into the early 80s. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you probably had like a dozen roller coasters operating at Coney Island during that time. And you know, I think we're just fortunate that through all of Coney Island's challenges after World War II, the, uh, we, the Wonder Wheel and the Cyclone were able to remain. So now, here's what's kind of cool about roller coasters. I guess this is kind of true of anything, really, is when something goes from being, like, artisanal into mass, produ mass production. So at the time, you're talking about Coney Island as kind of this group of entrepreneurs kind of doing their own thing, perfecting what they love to do. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you mentioned the whip. This happens in 1890. I was actually kind of astonished by how quickly roller coasters developed. Um, mm -hmm. But this, the whip was the first mass-produced ride, so now you've got people mass-producing mass producing things. Uh, this is kind of where it, the industry took off. It would be my estimation. Is that true? Right. Yeah. But yeah. The yeah, the the, uh, the years following World War II, that's where you really started seeing a lot of company. I mean, companies really being you know providing being the means to outfit an entire amusement park. Um, a lot of the manufacturers started in the 1890s, but uh, they might have focused on one ride. Um, very few of them really kind of offered a full line. And But by the uh, 20s, most of them were offering mul you know, multiple products. Right. And the Eli Brindle Company, which was established in 1900, they still manufacture Ferris wheels today. Right, yeah. Ferris wheels, um, scramblers, um, those are the two main products. They have some you know, other smaller types of things. But yeah, I mean, it's really amazing that they've been able to survive you know survive for almost 120 years really with one key product i know right you would imagine i imagine it'd be saturated by the 50s but i mean they're still making them so that's as a company mm -hmm. it's not like they're making you know they're, they're making a, a profitable business on this 
so, so the 1920s happened. You call this the golden age, and this is kind of because the automobile becomes popular and people can get to these places, but this also creates a huge transition in that if you don't have a parking lot, then you don't have a population of people going there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really a, a big evolutionary period for the industry. It was a... Uh, time in which uh, most of the trolley companies that were so important um, to the early development of the industry decided this was not a business we wanted to be in anymore. So over, you know, starting around, you know, actually, you know, the late 18 aughts or 19 aughts to it through the uh, World War One, you saw them unloading them to private businessmen. Again, I think that helped in the, um, the growing sophistication of the industry because you had some, you know, a business person who was focused on running an amusement park rather than a trolley company uh, with somewhat something to generate ridership. Um, but yeah, there were a number of them that were just really, I think, you know, too small to uh, compete. You know, they didn't have either the land or, you know, they couldn't, you know, not the accessibility. Um, so you did see a pretty significant attrition through that time, even though the industry was thriving and growing. Um, you know, record, you know, unprecedented new rides, um, decreasing sophistication, uh, new parks being opened. And I think in the 20s it was you know interesting that uh, you would see um, swimming become very popular. So a lot mm-hmm. of the parks that opened in the 20s were um, built around very large swimming pools. That's so, th- so like the first water parks then. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, you didn't see the slides then, but yeah, that was really, I mean. Beaches park water, I guess, a, is what I mean. Like, yeah, right. So, yeah, <laughs> using using a water attraction as one of your main draws. Sure. Um, yeah, beaches had you know, been popular for decades, but uh, parks away from the beaches, you know, swimming was not really a big thing until that time. Now, it's also in this era, another key moment here is Playland is established. And this is the first large corporate park, meaning that it's owned by a large company, carefully planned, um, and I, I think I even read you. You you wrote that that they show they sampled several hot dogs to make sure that they had the, the correct yeah. hot dog for this place. So this is a very meticulously organized park. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was actually developed by the Westchester County, New York. Um, but they had you know one of the older uh, ramshackle uh, amusement areas driven by independent concessionaires. They didn't like the fact that there, you know, it had a really seedy reputation. There was really no, um, you know, no one central figure that they could work with to improve it. Uh, so they went in and took it over and created a new, um, a new amusement area. And yeah, I think, you know, I think having that clean slate to work with and the, um, you know, the uh, attitude from the government, you know, the government of what the county that we're, this is a recreational facility brought a different mindset to building it. That, you know, that we do want nice grounds. We do want complimentary attractions. We do, you know, want uniformed employees. We do want uh, the, the best food available. So that was, yeah, really kind of set the stage for what was going on in, you know, the fifties through the seventies when the corporations were coming in and building these carefully planned theme parks. Right, it was kind of ahead of its time, because right mm-hmm. after that, then you have the depression that hits, and amusement parks kind of go into a decline until World War II, basically. Right, and yeah, I mean, it was a very difficult couple of decades for the industry. Um, you know, with uh, 
disposable income pretty much drying up. People were cutting back on entertainment. Uh, you heard stories about like operators at Coney Island offering rides for a penny, uh, just to try to get someone to ride. Uh, but you know, most you know, a lot of the parks, you know, they, they couldn't add new attractions. They didn't have the money to do that. Uh, you know, they would rely on promotions, you know, grocery giveaways, and just anything to get people onto the grounds in hopes that you could get, you know, you know a dollar or two out of them. Right. But yeah, right. you saw. Yeah, I mean, you did see. You know. Dozens, if not hundreds, of parks closed throughout the country during that time. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, while yeah, World War II comes along, and that was really a mixed blessing for the industry. Um, you know, the economy is much better, but there's still not a lot. You know, they still can't add new attractions. Uh, parts are in short supply. I, I, you know, I remember reading a story about um, how parks had difficulty getting ammunition for the shooting galleries because oh, wow. bullets were going to the war effort. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, and so I think that really, um, you know, so the end, by, the, by the time World War II ended, the parks that had survived, um, I think, were really challenged in the fact that they didn't have the resources to make a lot of capital investments for over a decade. Um, you know, I think in a lot of cases, you know, I think during World War II, a number of parks, because of travel restrictions, had to close. Some of them never were able to reopen. Other ones really could never get caught up in terms of deferred maintenance. So you did have that real, you know, real challenging period uh, where at least the um, economy had rebounded, so people were spending again, but there was a lot of catch-up to do for the parks that had survived. What was kind of interesting about that is the parks, because gasoline was being rationed at that time, the parks mm -hmm. that required you to drive there were the ones drying up, and the ones that were accessible by public transportation were the ones that were getting more, you know, attendance. Yeah, exactly. That was, I think, kind of an interesting irony over what you were seeing in the industry just a couple decades earlier. Yeah, I mean, it was like almost a complete reversal for obvious reasons. So then, so World War II, like you said, people are trying to play catch up, and then in 1955, the whole thing changed. Uh, the whole world changed in the theme park <laughs> industry, and it's kind of been going on ever since. And that was the creation of Disneyland. Right, and yeah, I think um, as I was kind of talking about when we were talking about Coney Island, I think it's interesting to see the what the the evolution of uh, Disneyland. You know, again. There was there are were theme type attractions operating before Disneyland, but Disneyland was kind of the catalyst that really changed things. So, um, yeah, leading up to Disneyland, you did see things like um, you know Knott's Berry Farm. They they built their Western Village in the 40s. Um, you know, Holiday World, or what was then called Santa Claus Land in Indiana, and you know, some of these storybook facilities that were opening as uh, in the post-war economy as people were then you know starting to take vacations again. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, really Walt Disney who, you know, kind of saw the the need for some sort of family-oriented attraction. You know, the story goes he was, you know, sitting there at the uh, merry-go-round at Griffith Park and just kind of sitting there thinking, you know, thinking, you know, I'm not really a merry-go-round rider. I mean, what is there for families to do together? And so he started creating, you know, what became Disneyland originally was going to be a small attraction at his movie studio, but his dreams kept growing and uh, they um, found this piece of land in, you know, right off what would soon be an interstate in uh, Orange County and 
made history. And I think it's interesting, and I've talked to some of the people who were involved with Disneyland when it opened, and when we think of Disney now, we think of this very sophisticated operation, lots of contingencies, um, they have tunnels underground at Disney World to keep characters from mixing into the wrong land. And it's interesting to see back then what, um, how much trial and error was going on at that park. Yeah, it was a very entrepreneurial culture. Um, but what Walt was very good at doing was hiring the right kind of people, you know, people who could buy into his vision and know what Walt was trying to accomplish and work towards that end goal and rather than getting you know, bogged down in the minutiae. You, know, you hear the story about um, you know, the, the, the Autopia ride, one of the most iconic Disneyland rides. Um, he hired this guy, Bob Gurr, to design the cars for it. And uh, you know, Bob Gurr uh, was an automobile designer. He could design the bodies, but he didn't know a whole lot about the mechanics involved. So he, the whole trial and error process that he had to go through to build a set of cars that could reliably run 12 hours a day, 365 days a year is just fascinating. And, um, you know, it, it was the very different culture then, you know, building towards this vision that really kind of changed the industry. Well, you know, you bring up a good point there is that these things, these things, especially at Disneyland have to be built to, to kind of facilitate a large number of people doing these things all day, every day, you know, almost Mm -hmm. 365 days a year. I mean, there's very few industries where the mechanics of it, the actual mechanical devices are unique, are required to be in operation for Mm -hmm. every day, all day. You know, I mean, that's, that's a lot of pressure to put on a mechanical system and Disneyland's done it relatively well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you now see that as the industry has gotten bigger and more global, uh, other operators doing that now, uh, you know, the universals of the world and yeah. uh, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I think that was another um, you know, way that Disney really changed the things was kind of the large-scale consumption of themed entertainment. And I think really what did that was the New York World's Fair. Because mm-hmm. you know, Disneyland up to that point you know, was much simpler than what we see today. Um, it was still unlike anything else anywhere, but you know, it, in the New York World's Fair, that gave him the opportunity to essentially take the money of the corporate sponsors and build these groundbreaking attractions that uh, were really immersive um, and could accommodate huge numbers of people. Well, like you said, people were kind of skeptical of this place first. I mean, they didn't have any coasters. There wasn't any swimming, no pools or anything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, no midway games. Nothing people had seen before. Uh, so it was kind of a it was a very revolutionary thing. I mean, there were theme parks before, but you know, nothing like this. And mm-hmm. he, he kind yeah. of changed it. You know, he made it organized. It's super. I mean, everyone that I know thinks when they think of Disneyland, they think how clean it is. People get picked up. You know, think garbage gets picked up. You know, the, the happiest place on earth. People are always right. happy. It's a very customer-centered. And this revolutionized the industry, believe it or not. Right, right. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, what, where Walt was able to succeed is that coming into it, he was already a world-class storyteller. So mm. through that, through the means of telling stories, he created these environments that other people really had trouble doing. Because if you look after Disneyland Open, there were a number of parks that tried to duplicate it, but they lacked the vision of a Walt Disney 
uh, that really um, created the, the type of environment and the types of attractions that could sustain the business. Now, were there other theme parks? Did Disney inspire any other theme parks, like, right after its opening? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was, um, I think the, the first one was Magic Mountain outside of Denver. Uh, they they hired uh, some of the Disney people to do that. Uh, they ran into funding issues, and it kind of opened half completed, and uh, just kind of struggled on for a number of years. Uh, there was Pleasure Island outside of Boston, uh, same kind of thing. They... Um, had trouble trying to come up, you know, their, their, their main attraction, which was this whale that was, you know, Moby Dick ride and the whale was supposed to come out of the water, never quite worked. Uh, and then Freedom Land, which I think was the most famous or infamous of the, uh, early theme park imitators. Um, again, they, I mean, you had the market, uh, if you look at some of the old pictures, it was a pretty nice facility. And I like loved the concept that, it was laid out in the shape of the United States and the themed areas were kind of in that appropriate area. So the new England themed area was up in new England and, um, you know, there was a miniature Rocky mountain range that the sky ride took you over and that separated the San Francisco area from the Santa Fe area. Um, (laughs) but again, it, I, it seems like from what I've heard, it lacked the magic of Disneyland. It didn't, you know, have that storyteller that could, uh, create the compelling attraction and it just never really caught on and yeah i know that towards the end they just started morphing into more of a traditional amusement park where they would just bring in rides um without you know any kind of theming or context just to get people to show up and that was, uh, but yeah the, and that was considered like a ahead. pretty big failure wasn't it the real land oh huge yeah mm-hmm I mean, one of the you would say the biggest, or was it? Uh, I mean, as far as mo- money goes, uh, probably. I mean, you know, up, especially up until you know the Hard Rock, the Hard Rock Park that opened in uh, Myrtle Beach about ten years ago. You know, that was four hundred million dollars and wow. went bankrupt after one year. So that might <laughs> take the uh, <laughs> take the record right now. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty historical failure. Uh, and so at this time, so Six Flags becomes the first successful chain. Now they're not really, I guess, the, the, is, are they considered theme parks? I mean, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think back then it was much more so. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. And there's lots of debates about just what is a theme park, but in the case of Six Flags, um, you know, one of I think one of the, one of the things that helped them in those early years, again, they had a visionary in Angus Wynn who was going to make sure it was going to work. Uh, he was a real estate developer, so he wasn't. He had other resources that could help support the park, you know, because it was it was built as part of a broader uh, real estate development, um, industrial development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can even going back now, you can look, and he had some very. He was able to hire smart and brought some very good people in who impacted the industry for decades beyond that. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think he also started on a much more modest scale than what Freedom Land tried to do. Got it. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of grew into that. But, you know, they did have the six themed areas around the six countries that Texas had been a part of. Um, but, yeah, you're right. As um, as the industry evolved, you saw less of a connection to the original theming in a lot of those parks. And I think, you know, the whole word theme park is now more, you know, to me connotes, you know, the corporate owned and developed amusement park yeah yeah that makes yeah 
Well, and also because like, I, and and I think we're kind of coming to this right now is when I think of like Six Flags specifically, I think roller coasters, you know, I yeah. think thrill rides. I don't think you know a themed park you know the six mm-hmm. flags is kind of you know to be perfectly honest with you i don't know what the six flags are i mean i don't know what the countries that, that, that yeah. they're supposed to be representing all i know is they've got the biggest fastest roller coasters and i know we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit here but i think this is a, this is probably a good place to, to be right now is people want to hear about roller coasters and mm-hmm. this is the era the 2000s i think specifically maybe the late 90s um you had this kind of as these things started being owned by other corporations and there was, you know, um, kind of a, what do you want to say, like a, an arms race for, for roller coasters. Mm-hmm. How, how and why did this start? Well, yeah, I think um, what you saw was, yes, the, the original Six Flags parks, um, there were their first three were all, did stick to that Six Flags theme. As the industry consolidated, they bought places like Great, you know, Great America, which... Um, really didn't have the six distinct themed areas or mm-hmm. the whole story behind six countries that were part of the Chicago area. Right. Uh, but that point, Six Flags was as much of a brand as a as it was a concept, and so yeah, mm. it was known as you know a major theme park operator. But what you saw, I think, kind of really the watershed as the industry grew up. I think they did start noticing that people still did like the thrill rides. And, um, you know, Kings Island, when, you know, Tafton Broadcasting got into the theme park industry and developed Kings Island, the roots of Kings Island were in Coney Island, a very successful traditional amusement park. They didn't have as much of the qualms about including some of the more traditional features of an amusement park in that theme park environment. So, you know, they built the Racer, which was you know, a big uh, wooden roller coaster. And you know, they had Midway games. Um, which um, I, you know, Magic Mountain had tried the year before when they opened. Um, but so you started seeing some of the, the traditional amusement park elements start creeping into it. And I think the, they, show, they figured out pretty quickly that people liked those thrill rides. And you saw throughout the 70s, you know, the first roller coaster arms race where uh, – yeah, the, the theme park started adding bigger, faster roller coasters, the looping roller coasters. Um, yeah, that continued into the early 80s where it took a, a brief hiatus. Um, you know, at that time, I think, you know, the development wave of theme parks largely ended in North America. Um, most of the parks had their big flagship roller coaster. So they um, started looking at other things throughout the 80s, like the water rides were big in the 80s. Um, but then again, um, what goes around comes around. In um, 1988, uh, Great America put in Shockwave, which was a new record-breaking roller coaster. 89, Cedar Point put in Magnum. And through 2005, you just saw consistent one-upsmanships going um, th- throughout largely the North American industry, but the European and Asian industry started getting involved too. Well, in, in, it's kind of amazing. You, you bring up, I read this in, in, in your book that, so in 1988, Shockwave comes in. It's 170 feet. Uh, it kind of reignites the arms race. But by 2002, it's sold for scrap because no one's on it because everything's, right. everything's higher, faster, you know, longer. I mean, it's, it's amazing mm-hmm. how quickly it changed. Yeah, I mean, um, well, yeah, you know, 
I, I think that's kind of shows the fickle nature of the consumer that, you know, going into it, the thought was you needed a lot of loops in a roller coaster. I think what might've, uh, in the long run hurt shockwave was the next year when Magnum opened, which was 200 feet tall and focused on the high speed and the big Hills and didn't have an inversion. And all of a sudden the industry was like, Oh wait, there's a new way to provide these, you know, big world-class thrill rides. It's, you know, people, you know, there's lots of people that don't like loops. And I think, uh, so as, yes, great America evolved, um, they put in things like raging bull and, you know, people looking for the big, the biggest thrill ride in the park were gravitating more towards that. So, what is the current record for tallest and fastest as it stands today, uh, the first of 2017? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, the tallest, I believe, is still King Daka. It's Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey. Um, fastest from, I mean, there's a couple ways to look at. Uh, you know, the fastest roller coaster, um, you know, because now that they, they have the whole concept of a launched roller coaster where they launch it out of there. So um, the one at Ferrari World in the United Arab Emirates is um, considered the fastest, but that's, you know, that's, that's a launch speed. A launch um, speed? What is their launch <laughs> speed? <laughs> 149 miles an hour. So Holy cow. <laughs> they launch that. Yeah, they launch you out of the station, and you reach 149 hour uh, miles an hour before, um, before you get yeah before you go up the first hill. That's insane. And do, how long? What does it maintain at? I mean, does it maintain 149 for the ride, or does it no, just no? I mean, slow down for I mean, it's going up and down hills. So, um, yeah, in turn, but. Uh, yeah, you you have other uh, yeah. So you get the get the drop speed. Um, I'm just looking at uh, the list here. Yeah, Fury 325 at uh, Carowinds in Charlotte. That reaches speeds of 95 miles an hour coming off their drop. If their 325 foot drop. So um, yeah, that might be the fastest gravity. Speed. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. I mean, it's 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 nuts. Um, well, Jim, this is this is a great place to end it. But you've agreed to stick around to talk about some of the innovators of roller coaster. We're going to put that up as a new bonus episode. Um, but in the meantime, how can people find out more? You, you're a wealth of knowledge on this subject. You've written mm -hmm. you've written a dozen books. What are some of the, What are some of the books that that are the best ones for people to get into this? And where can they find them? Well, um, yeah, I, I have a series of four books that I had written between 2002 and 2008 that kind of profiled amusement parks in a certain area. So there's amusement parks of Pennsylvania, amusement parks of New York, amusement parks of New Jersey, and amusement parks of Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. Um, you can find those on uh, Amazon. That's probably the best place to go because I think some of the earlier ones are now out of print. Uh, then I had written a couple of... Um, uh, histories of amusement parks, so Waldemere Park in Erie, which is a fabulous family-owned amusement park uh, that's been around since 1896. Uh, that's uh, available through Arcadia Publishing or, uh, again, on Amazon. And then on uh, Geauga Lake uh, Amusement Park in Northeast Ohio, which uh, closed in 2007, we, I wrote a book in, with a friend of mine, Dave Honor, uh, looking at the history of the park during the period of six, 1969 to 1995 when they were owned by this group called Funtime and really brought a lot of innovations to the industry. Um, so those are you know, my books. Um, again, I'm also a historian for the National Amusement Park Historical Association. 
Um, our website is uh, NAFA.org, N-A-P-H-A. Um, that's another place, good place to go for uh, industry information, and uh, if you're interested in joining, to sign up there too. Do you do any social media? You guys doing any of that stuff? Yeah, we do have uh, NAFA does have a Facebook page. They're on Instagram, um, so you can find them there. Uh, I'll have links to all this stuff on the website. Make it easy for people. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been incredible. Yeah, sure. It was enjoyable. Thank you, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode in the archive or to follow along on social media. You will find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the webpage. You can also subscribe to the newsletter which will tell you all about upcoming guests as well as projects that are on the horizon, everything you could possibly want to know about the future of Fascinating Nouns. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. And please, if you like this show, you'll love all the other stuff that I do, check out my projects on DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.